Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Bo Lotto. He's a professor of neuroscience at the University of London and an author. Bo is the founder of the Lab of Misfits, which he describes as lunatic fringe neuroscience. He's created nightclubs in his lab where every action people take is measured. He's locked people in dark rooms and waited to see what happens. And he's got actors to have a fit on the floor to observe how people respond. Today, expect to learn the neuroscience of why awe makes us feel so connected to the world around us, how donating a lot of money to charity can turn off that girl that you're trying to impress, why unanswered questions causes so much anxiety, how distraction occurs in our brains, and much more. Don't forget that the Modern Wisdom reading list is now live. You should take your face to chriswillex.com slash books to download your copy now. There is a hundred books that you need to read before you die waiting for you. chriswillex.com slash books. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They are the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof and gym proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee, so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product, they will give you a new one for free. Get a 15% discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cdwisdom and using the code MW15 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash letter C, letter D, wisdom, and MW15 at checkout. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025 and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash modern. That's netsuite.com slash modern to get your own KPI checklist today. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90 day money back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. 
Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Bo Lotto. Bo Lotto, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. Good to be here. We were just talking about what happens if you can hear your own voice briefly after you say it. So it's like your mum's old phone on loudspeaker and you're speaking and then her microphone catches the audio out of the speaker and sends it back to you. What happens with your brain? What were you talking about there? Uh, well, if, you're, um, if you actually hear your voice a fraction of a second after you've spoken, your, your brain doesn't know what to do. And eventually, if it keeps happening, you'll just stop talking. You'll literally, your brain just says, shut up. You just stop talking. And not just because of the content. I mean, part, part of it is you actually <laughs> you're hear me. what you're actually saying. So you actually bore yourself. But it's, it's more than that. It's actually the, um, it just can't cope with that. Because, of course, we are used to hearing our voice immediately. So now if I hear it almost like an echo, uh, your brain can't deal with it. That's... And so it just, just stops. That just sounds, gets worse and worse. sounds to me like the audio version of when you see a face that's got two sets of eyes on it. Have you seen this where they stack two eyes over each other? And you're, when you look at it, there's a skull on a wall on my drive to the gym in Newcastle. And there's a skull with two sets of eyes, two eye holes, perfectly done. Uh, and even looking at that, my brain just isn't quite happy. It knows yeah. there's something amiss. It knows that there's something wrong. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're, people don't realize, of course, how strongly, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, how strongly we're wired to see what's familiar uh, and how, in that sense, we're actually wired to detect the unfamiliar because your brain is constantly sort of adapting to what's average. Uh, and there's a, there's a really good reason why that's true. But it also, there's some really strong consequences to that from, from political onwards. How do you describe what you do for work? How do I describe it? Uh, how long do you have? Oh, wait, we haven't. Um, what do I do for it? So I'm sort of like professionally a neuroscientist. Okay, so I study perception. I study how the brain makes meaning, how it makes meaning of itself, how it makes meaning of the world, of other people. So that's what I, in some sense, I am. Uh, but we're kind of like lunatic fringe neuroscience in the sense that um, the world becomes our lab. So what I do is we, me and not just me, my lab, what I call the lab of misfits, and what we what we do is we basically try to understand the principles by which we we see the prince and hear and touch the principles by which we make perception and then we try to give people insight into those principles uh through immersive experiences and so they can actually embody it uh, and then through that hopefully give them understanding which then gives them freedom to then do something about the perception so, I mean, you, you do amazing things in nightclub immersive experiences. For us, that becomes a lab, right? The world is effectively, the world isn't a stage for us. The world is a lab, and literally. You, you started a nightclub in one of your labs. 
Yeah, yeah. So we turned we've we actually have turned the lab into a nightclub. We booked an underground Victorian prison in uh, Clerkenwell in East London. is absolutely brilliant space, uh, and we you know sold out within minutes on timeout. We had the people come, and you know they 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 come. They're separated from whoever they came with. They're meet, met by this person in a in a bee outfit, as in a caretaker bee, not like dressed up with stripes. <laughs> um, so the space is filled with actors and everything. And and then the first thing they do, they they have to spit into a vial, uh, because we're going to measure their cortisol levels before and after. And everything in the space becomes measured. People know this is not an accident, and it's not done surreptitiously. I mean, um, they know that they they're being measured, even from the way they dance. Uh, we have primatologists watching people dance, um, the way that the food that they eat, how they eat, whether they eat by candlelight, everything. We had them going into prison cells and then we had someone going into a panic, but they didn't know it was an actor who was going into a panic. And then we're measuring to see how people respond. Or, well, like a or pretend other participant. Yeah. And then we're measuring everybody's heart rate, how they respond. But then also the personality profiles, who steps forward to help, who starts panicking themselves, who c- gets contagious, or you just stick 20 people into a dark room and shut the door. And then just wait. <laughs> it's amazing how oh long God. people will just sit there. And they eventually decide, like, now what? And they, they don't often don't occur to them, so, well, maybe we should just leave. And, <laughs> and so we're sort of measuring these types of things. Um, all that kind of stuff. It's brilliant. It's wonderful. How many uh, people went? M- in this instance, so some, that one was uh, 75 people. So sometimes they're very intimate. Sometimes they can be massive. Um, but for us, it's, it, these experiences, um, they're not just an attempt for us to better understand uh, the human mind, uh, but for people to better get a better understanding of themselves. So our, my personal deeper motivation is to give people a sense of agency and, and humility and compassion and creativity. Um, but you don't have a choice unless you know you have it. And choice begins with awareness. So we also give the data back to people. So they walk away with a deeper understanding of themselves. Uh, and that's really what I'm after. Um, we don't then say what to do with it, because that's up to them. If you tell people what to do, you've actually taken it from them. But you give them the agency of choice, but you give them the information from which to make a decision. And how you do that reveal can actually be really challenging because if you tell someone something different from what they think be true about themselves, that can actually be a real challenge for them. They could actually completely resist it. In fact, you can make them go in the opposite direction. Mm, Like a reverse self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, in a way. So if I tell you something about you, or if you tell me something, right, and and we're seeing this all over the place right now. We've seen it for years, but we're seeing it very strongly in politics, especially in the U.S., um, but if I tell you something about, uh, you tell me something, right? And I show you, give you all kinds of data to show that you're wrong, right? Uh, there's a very good chance you'll actually hold stronger to your view than you did before, right? Why? Well, it depends to, to the extent that you've actually identified with the thing to which I'm now contradicting, right? Uh, well, I'm, the data is contradicting. So you'll hold stronger because actually to doubt that piece of information is to actually doubt who you are. And that is possibly the strongest um, system or strongest uh, context for uncertainty. And we, we, as you know, we'll talk about, we hate uncertainty and we loathe it often, not in all situations, but in almost every situation, we hate uncertainty. What were some of the best things that you learned from your nightclub experiment? the most interesting things? 
Uh, <laughs> well, a um, couple has just come off the top of my head. First of all, um, the uh, that people dance, the people are promiscuous in their dancing, right? But they dance in the in the same way they have conversations. So you you dance with the same number of people as you do when you have conversations, but you switch your partners more often. So it's as if you're having a conversation with someone through the physical movement, which is kind of cool, I think. Um, another aspect is, uh, this was a great experiment, I thought. Um, I love designing experiments. It's, to me, it's like an art form. I think it's a beautiful thing. Uh, and so, but this one actually had to be designed because we we're trying to get it around alcohol licensing. <laughs> so we couldn't actually serve alcohol. We couldn't get an alcohol license, right? You'll know all about this, right? So we couldn't get an alcohol license. But turns out you can give alcohol away for free. I didn't know this, right? That's the, <laughs> you workaround, know this, right? That's the workaround, man. If you've not got a license <laughs> to right? sell it, just give it away and put it into the ticket just price. Give it away. Yeah. Um, well, in, in our case, we said, well, how do we turn this into an experiment? So we decided to turn it into an experiment on donation. So people could go, could donate publicly or they could donate privately. And if they donated privately, again, we turn it into a theatrical experience. My The creative director of, of my lab was previously artistic director of Cirque du Soleil. And, you know, so we can turn these things into wonderful um, experiences, or she can. So, um, but in this case, uh, you went and you crawled through this thing. There's a Punch and Judy thing. And, you, you know, so it was all theatrical. And it was very, very secret how much you donated, right? Um, and then you got a raffle ticket. And with that raffle ticket, you could then get a drink. Um, or you donated publicly. And if you donated publicly, you went into this wonderful, massive photo booth with a very well-known portrait photographer. And you got your picture taken with how much you donated. And then you got projected 10 foot by 10 foot above the dance floor with how much you donated, right? So it was really public, okay? Turns out men donate more publicly than they do privately. Maybe not a surprise. Women don't. They donated just as much. Okay, then all those photographs of the men got sent to a bank of computers and women rated the physical attractiveness of the men. And in half the pictures, they could see the donation, the other half they weren't. So they weren't asked to make any comment about the donation, but how attractive, physically attractive were these men? And what do you think, who was more attractive in terms of donation? What do you think? Man with more resources. So it turns out the more you donated, the less physically attractive you appeared to be. Interesting. Why do you think that yeah. is? Showing off. Too much conspicuous right. consumption. Or, yeah, and also just one of the most attractive features of another person is their authenticity. We're highly wired, highly tuned to detect someone's authenticity. Why? Because to, um, to be lied to, um, to be tricked during evolution, it was a really bad idea, right? It really... You know, to, to, that's why um, we're, and also the authenticity of a company. It's why, in fact, the Lab of Misfits works with brands to say it's not enough just to have a purpose. You know, you can have these wonderful purposes, but unless you're authentic in it, it's just a slogan. And people will detect that inauthenticity. Think of that Pepsi advertisement uh, a year or two ago. You might be familiar. This was in America, where uh, I forget the the um, celebrity that they had come and it was on Black Lives Matter. It was, it was building basically um, very opportunistic on the current uh, cultural climate at the time. And they created this sort of extravaganza uh, uh, music video type thing. It completely black backfired 
Um, and in fact, it took them over a year to get back to where they were simply because they were detected to be inauthentic, but opportunistic. So when a guy is actually donating, and we're not talking lots of money, you know, 10, 15 quid or something like that, the women are detecting this like, so what are you trying to compensate for? You're, you're, you're being inauthentic. You're trying to show off. And it literally manifests in being less physically attractive. Fuck. So authenticity is super important um, in, in personal uh, um, one-to-one relationships, but also corporate relationships. All these guys trying to get pussy by doing philanthropy. They've got it the wrong way around. Be a cheapskate. <laughs> well, well, not necessarily, right? Not necessarily. Because actually, if you think that five quid or something like that, it's not a huge cost okay, um, to you. Now, if on the other hand, you donated your time or you donated all your money, so it's not just how much money, it's whether, to what extent is actually a real cost. So um, a, a sign of authenticity is that you're spending effort on something for which you're not going to gain. Okay. Um, and so, or at least not directly. And so, you know, I'm the, these guys were looking to gain something. But if they gave all their money, well, that's a huge signal. That means you really care about something. You're really taking a hit. It's a bit like when I was growing up. My mom said, you know, a gift isn't a gift unless it costs you. Right? Um, if, if I just found something and said, oh, well, here you go, Chris. You'd be like, oh, that's, that's great. But was it really a gift for me? It's like, it didn't cost me anything. And your brain detects that. Yeah, skin in the game is a measure of authenticity. You can't fake effort in that way. In many, in many sense, yeah. Which is why often in startups, whatever they they want to see, they want to see the you know the founder has skin in the game. The different people have skin in the game. Or why you actually would give equity to the to the team so they all have skin in the game and then reduce their in you know salary so everyone is working for the same cause. You see this in startups that are growing as well that the founder often gets kept on. So a buddy of mine who I had on the show recently, Aubrey Marcus, his company on it just got purchased by Unilever for a incredibly large undisclosed amount to take it global but he's being kept on why because that's a very public show of authenticity that if you just get bought out by some huge big corporation and then you rip the figurehead out of the company it's a lot harder to find that authenticity as opposed to perhaps step by step slowly pull Aubrey's face away from the branding and blah 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 I don't know what the plan is but that seems like a plan yeah so that that's part of it. So I actually have two startups myself, and and the um, historically, what often happened is that these big companies would buy up a startup because they're buying, they're trying to bind the creativity, and then they break up the startup. What they don't realize is that's the team, it's the group of people, and the culture that actually often enabled that success. So you get a lot of less um, VC investors, but a lot of angels and super angel investors. They're investing not in your idea. There's a there's a very significant investor I know out of Israel. He's he's got 80 different investments. He doesn't care what your idea is. He invests in you, right? And so that's one aspect is that these large companies are realizing that it's actually that team that made it successful. If they break up that team and they dissolve it and they they sort of bring you know diffuse it into the company, they've lost the actual. Um, beauty that was created in the first place, which is one of the reasons why you could argue WhatsApp, Instagram, et cetera. They've remained um, teams within Facebook. Mm. That's one point. Um, The other aspect is what I call the host effect. So you put on dinner parties, right? So 
the um, when you go to dinner parties or the nightclubs, right? The um, the personality of the of the host infects the party, right? If you're a quiet host and you're like this and very introverted, the whole party is quiet. But if you're an extroverted host and you're sort of celebratory, the whole party is extroverted and and celebratory, right? So the the group takes on the personality of the host, okay? And as soon as the party becomes a, about the host, you're no longer hosting. It's now all it's now about you. Okay, so a brilliant host infects the party with their own energy, for better or for worse. Well, what's true for the party is also true, I believe, for a company. The personality of the founder, the personality of the of the people who run the company, but in particular the founder, will infect the whole company. So, which is one of the reasons why you see Facebook the way it is. It is, in some sense, the manifestation of the personality of its host. Okay, a classic, a very good example. I don't know the classic is between Target and Walmart, Walmart in in the states. Uh, there are two companies that were formed around the same time in the same part of the states in Minneapolis. One of them was a the host, the founder was a nickel and dime corner store, as cheap as possible, right? The other one was founded by a department store where it was service that mattered, the the customer mattered, right? They both started in the same place. Both of those um, hosts are now dead. The companies live on. Target has one of the highest loyalty um, of any other store in America. It's like 80% outrageous, right? Why? It's because of that personality of that host continued well beyond. Think about New York. New York was not founded by the British and the, Purit and the Puritans. It was founded by the Dutch. It was New Amsterdam. And at that time, hundreds of years ago, Amsterdam was the place that people went to for religious freedom. So if you, as long as you profess loyalty to Amsterdam, you could practice whatever religion you wanted. So it was a real place of freedom, which is still kind of true for Holland and Amsterdam in general. Think of New York. New York is not like America. It's not like anywhere. New York's New York. I used to live there for the last five years, right? Um, and it still has that personality of its founders, of its host. So I think that's the other reason why they keep on the founders, because they want to maintain, or they should at least, maintain that personality, maintain that, um, that host effect. What about awe? I know that you've spent a lot of time looking at that. Oh, um, so awe is a wonderful thing. I think awe is possibly one of our most powerful perceptions. Uh, so what is awe? Um, so other people have, have defined awe to be that moment where we think a surprise, we can't understand it, but then to understand it means I probably have to shift my current understanding of myself in the world. So surprise is surprise. Wonder is, that's amazing, but I bet this fits with what I already know. So a magic show gives wonder, right? I bet if I understood the trick, it would still make sense to me, right? But awe is something else. It's like, I, that's amazing, I don't get it, and I'm gonna have to shift my view. So that's kind of like a formal thinking about awe. But what does it do is really powerful. So we, we did an experiment with Cirque du Soleil uh, which is a wonderful group to, of course, be working with. And we measured people's brain activity, and we measured what changed in their perception and behavior of themselves in the world before and after their experience of awe, because who better to work with than Cirque du Soleil to create awe, right? And what we found, uh, well, actually, we, we found a couple of things what other people found, which is your pro-social behavior increases. So you want, you look after other people. You're more likely to open a door for someone else. You're more likely to listen, et cetera. But also what happens is your tolerance to risk 
increases. You're more willing to take risk and you're better able at taking it. Um, your need for what's called cognitive closure, your need for certainty decreases. You're more willing to sit within uncertainty. And even your whole perception of yourself changes. So when asked afterwards, are you someone who is more likely to experience awe in the past? You're more likely to say yes. In other words, you start reframing yourself as someone who experiences awe. Your ego diminishes. You feel small but connected to all those around you, including nature. Right? And I would argue that in some sense, that's what people are often referring to when they, when they think about being in the, in the zone, um, being in the moment. You're actually getting yourself out of you. And in some sense, this is what psychedelics are all doing. This is what psilocybin or ayahuasca, it's getting you out of you. Uh, and I think in some sense, that's our most powerful perceptual state, ironically, is not thinking of yourself. But in a world where everyone's far more neurotic, spending too much time in their heads, a lot of time, mm. you know, what we celebrate is cerebral horsepower, you know, sort of along with the scientific method and rationality and utilitarianism and a meritocracy comes everyone thinking more IQ points, more time inside of my head is the solution to me getting more of the things that I want in life, you know, love, money, status, whatever. Mm -hmm. And all of that might be true depending on the context that you're in. So you're, if you're in a society and a culture where that's actually celebrated, yeah, you will be more successful. Um, will the society itself be more successful in the long term? Possibly not, right? So if you create a society which says that's a good idea, well, then that is a good idea, at least for the short term. It works on the... Um collaborative uh, upholding right if everybody considers it to be prestigious to have these things then by its very nature it's like a democratically elected um set of status metrics but what about yeah. so let's say that someone is spending a little bit too much time inside of their own heads they're being too neurotic mm. and and they really are just too up here what are some yeah. of the things i'm going to guess that trying to find an experience of awe would be one of them things to take yeah. them out of their heads That'd be one. Um, there are also other examples that I would say um, call um, being a sandbar. So being a sandbar is to be there to enable someone else to step into uncertainty. Um, so, for instance, there's increasingly, not, you know, the meditation is a wonderful thing. Um, yoga is wonderful. All these things are wonderful things. Um, but often they are taken out of the context in which they actually, in some sense, evolved. Um, meditation, um, uh, mindfulness, for instance, comes out of a Buddhist tradition. Okay, and the Buddhist tradition comes out of a culture that was actually very socially oriented. And one of the reasons is because it comes from a certain physical environment in which that arises, um, monsoons, etc. So social is very important. And we've done experiments where people who from the Far East actually look at images differently than people from the West. They'll more their eyes more likely look at the background, whereas your eyes are more likely to look at the foreground. Okay, the illusions that I make are stronger for people in the East than they are for people in the West because they use context, social context, and actually physical context more. Um, so, what a recent study has shown that if you practice mindfulness within a context of being more socially and oriented towards others, it increases your generosity. If, however, you practice mindfulness in a context of individualism, where your focus is yourself it actually decreases your generosity. So it would have, at least in terms of generosity, it would have been better not to be mindful, right? It actually makes it worse. 
because what's happening is you become more and more focused on self. And often with anxiety, that is where it's, it's, it's coming from. It's that constant focus on yourself where often, and we all experience that as soon as you get yourself out of it and you start thinking of someone else, you start giving, suddenly things become a little bit better, right? So in some sense, there's a, not a solution, but there is a strategy and I apply it myself when I'm feeling pretty rubbish, I will purposely go out of my way to, sometimes you have to force yourself to go and do something that's useful to someone else. Do something that's kind. And it maybe sounds like a cliche, but it actually is shifting your, your attention away from yourself. Because I can get you, I mean, um, you know, you, you think about pain and chronic pain, and you know, I could put a piece of sand in your hand. And if I got you to focus on that piece of sand as much as possible, it would become eventually very painful. So which means the whole of my skin the sensation of my skin it becomes focused on this tiny little bit, right? And that can, be, that can be what starts happening to people. And yet it's all in the guise, and I don't mean intentionally, but it all feels like it's in the guise of, of um, in service of the, a larger sense of self or larger world. So there's this alignment between what we say, our intentions, and what we do. What about dread? Have you looked at the other side of all? Dread. Oh, I haven't, but I like that idea. Um, is but dread mean, opposite to all? What would you say is polar opposite? The opposite of all would be, in some sense, what we were, I think the opposite of all in some sense is narcissism. Right? Because, say, I have a particular view of all, which is people think that it diminishes your ego because you feel connected. I think in some sense it expands your ego. What I mean by that is now my ego, if I define my ego, and you can define your ego in, in some more formal ways, more sort of colloquial ways, but if I define my ego very loosely in terms of to that to which I identify, if I start identifying with nature, with the animals that are around me, or with you, then in some sense my ego has expanded, and it's expanded to include things that aren't just within my own skin. Right. So in some sense, I think it's expanded. So the opposite of that is contraction. Where you're completely self-focused, completely focused on yourself. Um, lack of generosity, not wanting to take risks, completely fearful of uncertainty. That's where we get anxiety. That's where anxiety lives. That's where depression lives. Which doesn't say they're the opposite, but in necessarily in a formal sense. But in some sense, in a behavioral sense, in perceptual sense, they are. You mentioned about focus, focusing on a grain of sand specifically, but focus and distraction are just two of the most common desires and ailments, I think, for people at the moment, smartphones and social media and too much electronic devices. Have you ever done any work on focus and distraction and attention? <laughs> we're, we're actually in the middle of a study of that just now. We're actually focused, uh, ironically huh. or coincidentally, on... Um, on silence and the power of silence um and it's a fascinating topic it's a fascinating topic um and i can't go into necessarily all the findings that we have so far but from what we already know from other people done have done silence is one an understudied um phenomenon but it's also a deep human need but it's also something that people thinking of your the word you used before dreaded 
So there's a study, for instance, showing that at least for um, this group of people they studied in a young group, people would rather be physically harmed than sit in a room for about 16 minutes and do bugger all, right? So when they, so they had to do that once. And when asked to do it a second time, they said you could do it a second time or you could shock yourself. They chose the shock, right? Rather than sit and just, and not meditate, just sort of sit and do nothing, right? And yet we know you get increased neurogenesis, i.e. brain cells start being born uh, if you're in silence. Um, we know that your heart rate goes down. There's some estimates from the European Union that m literally millions of uh, years of well-being have been lost across the European countries. Um, it's even more recently been associated with the, the, the potential for Alzheimer's disease, the lack of silence. Um, and of course, it's very interesting. What is silence? Because there's no such thing as silence. Right. And what's more, your brain is super active when you're in the dark or when you're in silence. And in fact, I went, I did a dark experience for four, four days um, uh, last month. And that was a fascinating thing we can talk about. But the, uh, and so to, you're, you're, you have cells that are active when the lights go on, but you also have cells that are active when the lights go off. Because your brain, you know, darkness is not the lack of light, it's, or lack of activity. It's your brain saying things are dark, it's telling you things are dark. And then when things are light, it's another set of cells saying things are light. Right. So things are very dark. It's just that different parts of your brain are active. When and you, we are underusing those. When you were talking about silence, is it have you defined it as complete silence or have you looked at things that are undiscernible noises? So like white noise or driving in a car without music or podcasts on, for instance. So the it's 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 a it's a comp, it's a difficult question to answer. I can give you some 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 aspects of insight into this. So. They're the most, and when it comes to say urban spaces, the most important noise that seems to impact people is not your neighbors. It's the um, industrial noise. It's transportation, it's airplanes, it's cars, it's, it's building works. In terms of decibel levels, those are the source, those are the noises that are actually causing the most challenging. And yet the ones we spend most time focused on are the neighbors, right? And it's like, why those? They're actually, they're, they're doing less for you. Um, and it's Shout at it, it, lean out of your window and scream at the people driving past in the yeah. car. That's what you should be doing. Yeah. Well, the irony is that there could be a massive building site with jackhammers going across the street, but the person is going to open up their curtains and tell their neighbor to turn down their music, right? Um, and yet, decibel-wise and continuous-wise, it's actually the cross the street. Maybe it's partly because it gives you that sense of agency that you're in control of something. Mm -hmm. um, and how am I going to stop this construction site, right? Sniper um, so rifle. That's one source. Sniper rifle will fix it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's your idea. <laughs> but um, so the, that's a uh, um, so that's one source of noise. But actually, it might be far more important noise is internal noise. What I mean by that is the jitter that's in your head. Uh, and so that's one one point is that 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 noise that's constantly I can't focus or that's possibly a more powerful noise than the others. So you could imagine, for instance, those, those remarkable meditators, Buddhist monks, whatever, I'm sure they could sit on the middle of an airfield and feel no sense of lack of distress by the noise coming past, whereas you or I would. So what's interesting is that our sensitivity to noise varies depending on who you are, your state of mind, 
and the noise that's going on inside your head, but equally for silence. And what is silence? Um, I think silence has something to do with unpredictability, um, uh, lack of agency. Someone just suddenly comes in and interrupts you in your mid-thought, right? Um, this type of stuff. And there's also an element of nature. We do, we have evolved to be in nature as well. Which is quiet. It's, but it isn't, is it? I mean, it's, I mean, it, if you go camping and, you know, up on the hill here in, in Ibiza, I mean, I, there's this, but it's not a cricket. It's not a cicada. I don't know what it is, but at four in the morning, it's basically <laughs> saying my house, my house, my house, my house, my house over and over again. And it's like, on the one hand, I'm thinking, this is beautiful. It's nature. On the other hand, I was like, shut, shut the fuck, the fuck up. At, right? And it's really annoying, but it's nature. So, you know, not nature isn't actually that quiet, but we find it peaceful. What's happening inside of our brains if we are used to a high level of input? If we're used to a high level of stimulation. Yeah, we adapt to it. You adapt to it. So it's what, I, what we referred to in the very beginning of redefining normality. Your brain is constantly redefining normality. So um, you go into uh, you go into a cinema. Everyone will know this experience. You go into well, once upon a time. Actually, I don't in Britain. Can we go into the cinemas yet? Yes. I'm, yeah, I can't remember. Okay. Um, so you go into a cinema, and initially, you know, the, cin the 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 lights are off. You know, you can't see the steps. You can't see anything, and you're, you're like shit. And you sort of pause there, and you're waiting for. Like, and what are you waiting for? You're waiting for your brain to redefine normality. In other words, to reset itself to the average level of illumination. And then you, if it's a matinee, for instance, and you walk out, and now in your brightness, it's like, whoa, that was overwhelming. And then you, again, your brain's resetting. Why? Because we can only be sensitive to a small range. Your brain cannot be equally sensitive to the massive range. Illumination, in terms of intensity, varies a billion to one. We can't be sensitive to that whole range simultaneously, equally. So we have to pick our windows. And we're constantly adapting. Why? Because we want to. We, what we really want to detect is change. So if I reset myself, then I can detect change around that around that average. Okay. So if you have lots of noise, lots of things going on, you will set, reset yourself, and that will become an expectation. Which means that if you you need to keep that level of noise in order for it to be normal. But this is also true. In terms, if you think about not just, say, the physiology of, of brightness, but also the physiology of ideas. One of the, you could argue, one of the most challenging consequences of what's happening, say, in the States, and not to go political, but in terms of, say, neuroscience, in terms of adapting normality, is that your brain will reset itself. It will say, ah, this is normal. What was previously not normal, what was previously like, I can't believe this is happening, will eventually say, oh, yeah. This is normal. And so the whole of society will shift to that new normal. And then we'll have fluctuations around that. Now, if that shift is in a negative direction, it will then become normal. And it will no longer be seen as negative. right? And then it will take another shift down and another shift down. right? Because to not adapt requires energy. So my point to people often is decide beforehand if you want to adapt to this thing, whatever that thing is, a relationship, a, a level of light, a level of sound, a political situation, whatever it is, decide beforehand if you want to adapt to it, because you will. Because to not do it is hard. And that's, you could argue, what a protest is. A protest is the energy required to not adapt. right? But you also see this in complex systems. It literally requires energy to not change to the common average. 
Think of people who are eccentric, who rebel. It's very costly, emotionally, socially, but also physically, to not adapt in some sense. I saw a study about people who usually live in the city and then move out to the country, and people who live in the country and move to the city. And both of them said that it was pretty unbearable in terms of the amount of mm. noise. You think, well, yeah. but surely one of them has to be better than the other one. You know, there's got to be a, a more optimal. And it's like, no, 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 no. The no. issue is this sort of Overton window of, of um, normal experience. And then somebody's been picked up and moved outside of that and change. Change requires energy. Adapt. Yeah. yeah. And, and we find that really challenging because we love familiarity. Why do we love familiarity? Because it's predictable. And even when that familiarity is awful, we will often go for the familiar is awful than the unfamiliar that we don't know. You know the, the old adage, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't, right? Um, in fact, that is not necessarily literally true. But we find that even to the extent that when someone is has a physical ailment, so lots of studies have looked into this. We haven't, but lots of studies shown, have looked into this. You have a physical ailment. You don't know the cause of this ailment. It's massively uncertain what this cause is, what the cause is. You finally get, and it's, and it's, you know, you're feeling awful, you're mentally feeling awful, all this kind of stuff. Then you're given the diagnosis. That diagnosis is a terrible diagnosis. There's this element of relief. It's like, oh, well, at least I now know. Even though what I now know is an awful thing. That's how much we want and need that sense of knowing, that sense of uncertainty. What did you do? I mean, uncertainty is like your specialist subject. What did you yeah. look at to do with this? Everything. Everything we look at is, in, is about uncertainty. Um, in fact, even my studio, when we design, we only ever design along a single axis, which is the axis of uncertainty. Um, sometimes we want to increase it. Sometimes we want to decrease it. Almost every one of our behaviors, almost every one of your behaviors is an attempt to decrease uncertainty, except in one context. Okay, so I would argue that, you know, in some sense, that's why Uber is successful. Uber is successful, not because they tell you when, a, you know, they enable you to get a taxi easier or faster. You know, that that's true. But it's because they tell you when the taxi is going to arrive. Right. And to the extent that that they get they get that wrong, people will stop using Uber. And this has actually started happening in some South American countries where, you know, you over, you order your Uber. It says eight minutes, five minutes, four minutes canceled. 12 minutes, da, 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 and people, oh, fuck it. And then, then they just order a taxi or wait for a taxi, right? But if I say, you know, it's, you know, it's five minutes, I'm going to show you where it is even. Your cortisol levels stay low, right? You're, you're no longer stressed because you have certainty. It's why in Britain, we, people, they put the um, time the bus is going to arrive up on the bus schedule, even though it says 45 minutes, right? And it's like, ah, oh, that's a pain. For, but at least I know, right? Um, so... Everything that we, almost everything we do is an attempt to decrease uncertainty. And then we apply that in business and in all kinds of aspects of our life. And, and we could actually even use that to, people use it to manipulate as well. Um, so both in a positive and negative sense. So in the positive sense, it's why cliffhangers work. It's why Game of Thrones works. Because what they're doing is they're, they're building up uncertainty. And at the end of every episode, they finish on a minor chord. And it's like, ah, I mean, you know what it's like, right? Well, I, I work with DJs here in, in Ibiza and, you know, they call it dropping the beat. You know this better than I, right? What, what's the power of dropping the beat? Well, what they've done is they've built up uncertainty 
they built up expectation, not expectation, your dopamine levels are going up and all this kind of stuff. And what's the brain's greatest need? It's for that closure. It's for that uncertainty to be resolved. And then they drop the beat and your whole body starts moving. Have you seen it? The whole rhythm of the whole room, everyone goes crazy. But then sometimes the DJs will play with you, right? And they'll drop it to a minor chord. And be like, oh no. And then they ramp it back up and they drop it right. And they're waiting, they're waiting. And then they finally drop it, right? Game of Thrones, the same. What they're brilliant at is knowing which minor chord to finish it at. So you have to get that closure. But personal relationships will also do that. So if I create a sense of uncertainty in you, and I'm the only source of resolving that uncertainty, I now have a power dynamic over you. Because I'm the only one who can give you closure. So you'll find that often people will even purposely create this. You see this in corporates. They'll say, I don't know if you're going to buy, you know, you're, you have a job for now. I don't know about next week. You know, and they're, they're constantly creeping that uncertainty. And they're the ones that now have a power dynamic over you. Well, think about um, the worst message to receive from your partner. We need to talk. Yeah. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Right? What's, what, just ring me. Like, if we need to yeah. talk, then fucking ring me. Don't tell me that we need to talk. I'm just going to wallow in this anxiety for the next hour. <laughs> you got those messages a lot. <laughs> and I said, I'm, I'm a, an ascended being now. That's we, not happened anymore. Well, no, I, we all get them, right? We yeah. all get them. And, and it's possible, in fact, that we've all delivered them too. Right? Yep. Um, because we, in some sense, we all kind of do this. The question is... Um, and because in some sense it's natural, right? But this is why what the lab is trying to do is give people awareness. And we call it perceptual intelligence. Once you're perceptually intelligent, when you, once you have an understanding of how and why you see what you do, now you actually have agency over that. Because otherwise you're just behaving reflexively. And then you're telling yourself post hoc rationale for why you did it. And usually that post hoc rationale puts you as a hero or puts the responsibility onto someone else. Right. But now, as soon as you realize, OK, everything I'm doing is is grounded in in my assumptions, my bias, et cetera, many of which I've created, many of which I've inherited. Now you actually have a choice. The natural response is to do X. That's fine. But now I actually have a choice to not do X. Right. Um, so that's that's the power of of knowing, because otherwise you're also going to create this power dynamic on people. Uh, and you're not going to know that you're doing it. There's a quote. No, I don't that, mean you. I no, mean no, no, no. There's a quote that I love from one of the Buddhist masters, and he says, "The choice in life is between becoming the, the pain of becoming aware of our mental afflictions and the pain of being ruled by them." Mm. That's the choice. Yeah, that's the choice. Yeah, that's right. Now that awareness is only a first step. Actually, there's something that comes before awareness. Uh, which often people don't talk about, which is the desire to have awareness, right? So we have an education program. We're, we're creating a school in Budapest with um, uh, some wonderful founders, and and it's a primary school that's turning into high, high school. And the first thing we focus on is care. I want the kids to care um, because if they don't care, in some sense, I don't care what they care about. I mean, I do as a personal one, right? But what I really want them is just care because they don't care they're not going to ask a question. They're not going to be willing to doubt, right, et cetera. So as soon as you have, now, you, now I have the desire to have awareness because awareness can be a, a bit of a pain because you might become aware of things that you didn't want to have awareness of. You might become aware that you're a bit of an idiot or you're a bit of an asshole, right? 
um, that can be hard. And we all have those elements in us. The question is, do you have the desire to look? Now, once you've looked, the next step is, do you have the desire to act upon it? Right? Because that's where you can get to stress. Coming back to um, uh, something we were talking about earlier, the alignment between my intentions um, and my words, my intentions, my actions. When they're out of alignment, we feel distress. But when they're in alignment, we can feel that sense of solidity. Whether or not my intentions and actions are good or bad is almost irrelevant. It's that there, there's an alignment that matters. That's more certainty, right? It's The only difference is that this uncertainty, we're culpable for it. We've mm. created, look, this is the narrative that I'm telling myself or the world about. I will not cheat on my boyfriend. I'm, I'm a loyal girlfriend and I'm going to do this. And then you cheat on the boyfriend and the girlfriend goes, well, hang on a second. I, I said this. This was the narrative that I told myself. There's now uncertainty because it's not in line with yeah. my actions. That's right. Um, but then the fact is that almost everything is contextual. As we've been kind of talking about, context is everything when it comes to the brain. Hence, the reason why it has to redefine normality. It's constantly changing its perceptions and behaviors according to context. So it's possible for her, what happened is that the context changed. Right? Now, the context could be an internal context. She herself changed as a person. right? Or the circumstances changed. Um, or she just wasn't, didn't have the awareness of who and why she did what she did, or, or he. Now she has awareness because that's the beauty of action. Behavior, there's truth in behavior. Right? So often I'll create a situation, and I've done this in my personal life. Right? It's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to create a context. Now, how you respond to it will then tell me what's true because words are easy. We all know what we're supposed to say right? in some sense. But now, and you can say all these wonderful things, but the question is, what are you going to do now? And what you do, whatever you do, it's not good or bad, but what I'll, what I'll have is truth. I'll now know what's true. If you want to step towards, well, that's true. If you step away, that's also true. But you can't speak to stepping forward while at the same time stepping away. Right? The stepping away is what's true. People make mistakes, though, or they misjudge. All the time. With their actions. All the time. Does that still make it true? Ah, um, what I mean by that is what's true in that moment for them as far as what their truth is, right? Now, a mistake is, is, I mean, mistakes are wonderful things, in my view. Conflict for me is a beautiful thing. To be in conflict is a wonderful thing, right? To be in a situation that's different from you expect, that's a wonderful thing because we can only literally learn through mistakes and through conflict. We never, you can never expand from a position of knowing. You can only ever expand from a position of not knowing, right? This is why I have on my wrist, I have a tattoo that says, I don't know, <laughs> right? To celebrate, I don't know, right? That's a beautiful thing. Um, the problem is that we so often engage in a situation where we think we're supposed to know, where knowing and intelligence is, is where the cash is. But I would argue that actually it's in not knowing where the cash is. It's in the beautiful question is where the cash is. But to ask a beautiful question means you have to engage in a situation with humility that says, I don't know in the first place. I mean, think going back to the dinner party example, 
you know, everyone's around the table. People are giving lovely insights. Did you know X? And people, that's interesting. Oh, that's interesting. What happens when someone asks a brilliant question? The whole table stops. And they almost all say the same thing. Ah, oh, I never thought of it that way. And yet the question didn't give any insight. It didn't give any answer. Suddenly it revealed to people an assumption that none of them knew they had in the first place. And people love that. Why don't we love it when you and I are in conflict or when two political parties are in conflict? Because we don't want to move. Because to move is to, is to step into uncertainty. And yet the only way to learn is to move. Life is movement. If you don't move, you die. It sounds like an equivalent between optimism and pessimism here that you're talking mm. about we often tell ourselves, we rationalize that we were either the victim or the uh, unintended uh, criminal perpetrator in a situation. A lot of the time, if we do something that is good, it's because we hold ourselves up high. And if we do something that is bad, it's because yeah. the world forced it upon us somehow. Is there an inverse yeah. of that? Because I have a bunch of buddies who seem to self-berate or um, they attribute their successes to fluke and they attribute their downfalls to themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there is a space that's in between those two. So the first one you're describing is ironically the measures that we use for op that, uh, that Seligman and others have devised for the measurement of optimism. So optimism as measured, I would just uh, argue against this, but optimism as measured is when something good happens, you think it's going to last forever, it's going to affect the whole of my life, and it's largely because of me. When something bad happens, it's going to be very specific, it's not going to affect the rest of my life, and it's kind of your fault anyway. Right? That's an optimistic person. And we know if you're optimistic that you're light, you live longer, you're happier, and all that kind of stuff. Well, who wouldn't be? Because all the good things are for me, and all the bad things are because of you. Right? Whereas the more sort of stoic, the more, the more sort of realist is like, Actually, this good thing that happened is kind of not just because of me. It's also because of you. This bad thing that happened is not just because it's also because of circumstance. So the concept of the demon was actually, which then became a familiar and was actually the basis of the muse. So the demons were like this thing on your shoulder that sort of, in some sense, took some responsibility for the bad things that happened. But they also took responsibility for the good things that happened. So it kind of diminished your ego. It kept you humble. So that in engaging the world with that humility um, and openness to the possibility that you had some agency in whether it went wrong or whether it went well is actually, I would argue, one of the distinctions between wisdom and intelligence. Wisdom to me is far more interesting than, say, intelligence. Um, Dig into that for me. What do you mean? Well, first of all, wisdom, for, in my view, it, you can't get it from a book. It comes from experience. It comes from um, uh, it comes from realizing that the world is contextual. This is what I would again equate to, say, perceptual intelligence. It has humility. It has compassion in it. Um, it engages with in conflict with the desire not to win, um, but with the desire to understand. And we can come to the distinction between understanding and, and conflict, if you like. Whereas intelligence is different. It can be. We often teach intelligence in school. We don't teach wisdom. In the school we're trying to create, it, we're looking to teach wisdom, i.e. seeking understanding rather than seeking knowledge, rather than seeking knowing 
X and X happened on this date. It's why did that happen? What was the significance of that? What was the context in which that, that can then generalize? Right. Um, so that to me is loosely a distinction between them. But when we enter not knowing with either with the desire to stand still or even worse with the desire to validate. So if you are in conflict, often what we do is we're seeking validation. I want you to agree with me or you want me to agree with you. And so I need to validate you. But what you really want is to be understood. Right. And so often when we when people are dealing with conflict management, they often psychologists will say, what you want to do is find common ground. Oh, you like football. Oh, I like football. That's great. Now, I know that actually what I'm trying to do is convince you on something else. So I'm trying to get you to, oh, what kind of buddies? Oh, you both like Arsenal. Well, you probably like Newcastle. I used to like Newcastle. But anyway, so we're trying to find that common ground. And then it's like, now let's talk about politics or something. Well, actually, this is called manipulation. But if I went to you and said, you know what, Chris, I disagree with everything you're saying. But I truly want to understand why you feel this way, because I truly think that I might learn something. But what I really want is to understand you because everybody makes sense to themselves, just not to other people. There's an internal law of physics inside you that is the basis of your rational decision. It's just that your physics are different from mine. Your data is different from mine. And so often I come to the point, it's like, oh my goodness, if I had that data, I would have that view too. But everyone's convinced of their own view, right? Like nobody's, yeah. nobody's fighting the corner of a view that they don't believe in. For the most part, there are some people yeah. that, that are misaligned or sort of willfully ignorant. But even the people that are willfully ignorant, like they're ignorant. If they were convinced of something else, if I convince you, if I managed to convince you that two plus two equals five, you are now convinced of that until somebody convinces you a different way. Are you familiar mm. with Chris Voss's work, the FBI's ex-head negotiator for kidnapping? Oh, no, I, I, I know of it, but no, not in detail at all. So but his, his book, ahead. Never Split the Difference, is you would, I, I would recommend it, super accessible read, you'll, you'll chew through it. And he does a lot of the things that you're talking about here. So one of the key tactics he has is called a that's right. So you um, steel man the other side's position as obsessively as possible, painful, second by second, the most detail that you can get, every single thing, and what you're aiming for. So this is what I think is happening, and you are this way because of this, and this is your view, and this is your view, and this is your view. Yeah. That's right. That's what he wants. That's the response that he wants. He tells this story about a guy um, that was a kidnapper that was holding a bunch of people in Vietnam hostage. And this had been going on for months, months and months and months. And they just, they couldn't make headway. And the guy that Chris was there coaching, the actual uh, negotiator himself, Chris said, look, we need to get a that's right out of this guy because we're not getting anywhere. And we're worried that he's going to kill the people that he's with. So he says, yeah. we need to get a that's right today. So this guy takes two hours of explaining I understand that you believe that Vietnam was taken over by imperialist powers. I, I appreciate why this is coming from. This is why you think this. This is why you think. Two hours. That's right. The next yeah. day, all of the hostages were freed. This guy, yes. it, it completely done. And another one, the other one that he does um, that I thought was interesting is a lot of the time when people notice an issue with the other side, they'll say, what's wrong? Mm. Two words. Yeah. So much assumption. So much assumption yeah. in the sentence, what's wrong? 
his suggestion, and he I can't remember all of them, it ascends, so you can ascend the intensity. Uh, but one of the first ones is, it feels like there's something on your mind. Mm. Seems like there's something. Seems like there's something on your mind. Uh, mm. And then another, sorry, another another final one is when somebody wants to suggest something to you in a deal and you can't make it work, just cannot do it. His first response is, "How am I going to do that? How am I going to make that work?" And what you're mm. seeing with a lot of these is it, it's trying to find that bridge. How am I going to do that? It opens it up to the other side. It seems like there's something on your mind. It invites somebody in. It's not judging what's wrong. It's like just a, such a disgusting thing to say. I mean, it, we've all done it in relationships. The person's mm. quiet and you go, what's wrong? And you shout it at them. And you're like, oh, yeah, because that's, that's really going to encourage the other person to tell you what's wrong. Yeah. Uh, and then the, that's right. Steal them on the other side. Make them feel understood genuinely and validated. Yes. That's well, right. so I, I would make a distinction. I, absolutely, I agree with all of this. Um, I would make a distinction between the understanding and validation. Because I don't think it's, you need to validate. I don't think I need to say, you're right. Mm. What I think I need to say is, I understand. Ah, that actually makes sense. Given what you think, given the data, given the information that you're using, given your aims, that makes, I, I, in fact, I'd probably do that too. But now let's talk about your assumptions that underpin that, right? So I don't need to validate you. And I don't need to be validated, but people want to feel like they're understood. Okay, so um, so I, I make a distinction between those because if you can only talk to people you can validate, well, there are very few people you can talk to. It's only people whose positions you agree with. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But if I'm seeking understanding, I can talk to anyone, right? Um, and also in doing so, often you learn. But what's also really important is often um, I'm not saying he does this at all, but that people give rules or steps um to these processes my argument is that these steps aren't enough they are very important they're very insightful but the most fundamental step is to want to because if you don't want to the steps are irrelevant when i talk to the businesses about innovation and leadership and things like this they, you know what are the five ways to become you know five what are the five ways to become a good leader it's like okay well lead by example admit mistakes and all this kind of stuff right but my argument is that you can't apply a, a formula right what you have to it's a way of being in the world because if you don't have this way of being and it's not a way of being that you switch on when you walk into your office right this is a way of being in which you engage with everybody and it's that way of being that says I want to understand. I want to expand my perception. But to expand my perception requires not knowing. Inquires, requires embracing uncertainty. Requires realizing uncertainty is an essential step. It's the ramping up of the music, right? The closure, the dropping of the beat is irrelevant if you haven't ramped up the music first. An orgasm is irrelevant if you haven't had the build up first. I mean, literally, an orgasm is the dropping of the beat, right? But it's a cycle. It's a spiral. You have to go out and then you come back. You go out and you come back. But you have to have the desire to move in the first place. Otherwise, no matter what strategy or formula you give me, I'm not going to engage in it. Which is why that's what I focus on, is that desire. Can you cultivate that desire? What we're talking about here so. is that a lot of the time people want the five-minute booty blaster shortcut to getting whatever being a good leader, yeah. having company culture, getting more performance out of my staff. And that needs to, it's much more embodied and scalable 
if you have someone that genuinely wants that. Now, presumably, there's absolutely still a place for the tactics because somebody that has desire but no tactics is just spraying into the dark with their with their bullets. Absolutely. As opposed to, yeah, so you need direction and speed. But yep. how can people develop the desire or do you have, a, do you have ways for, for people to do that? Uh, we do. Um, and uh, so when I do the corporate talks and everything, I speak to them personally first of all, about uh, how what we're doing here could actually be relevant to the whole of your life. But also you speak to what people's fundamental desires are, which is to have a meaningful life, to be happy, etc. And in the case of business, to be successful. So you say actually, and you have to show that this is actually a more successful way of being in the world. It might be a harder way. It might require you become having awarenesses that you maybe don't want, uh, etc., etc. But actually you show how it's in some sense self-serving. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I think in some sense, every behavior is in some sense selfish, right? Every behavior is in some sense trying to increase my perceived value of myself. The question is, how do I increase my perceived value? Is it by screwing as many people as possible? Is it by having a maximum bank account? Is it by adding a smile to as many, the faces of as many people as possible? Where do I get that value is fundamental. But the consequence is all the same. I get a stronger sense of value of myself, right? So, but similarly, actually, with the monetary value of a company, to show that actually to be authentic in your purpose will make you a company that has higher loyalty, both internally and externally. That will affect your bottom line because you will become a more resilient company when things go up and down. So you, you show how actually this is not just philanthropy. This is not just a nice way of being. It actually has real impact on your life. But it's also a harder road. But then the things that we put more effort into, we tend to perceive those things to have higher value as well. It's called the IKEA effect, right? Yeah. So that's I, I remember in I general spoke, the strategy. I spoke to Rory Sutherland about this, and he the oh, analogy. Oh yeah, Rory's great. He's fuck me, what a guy. He's just a force yeah. of nature. And we were talking about the fact that um, pick your own strawberries is very different to cheap strawberries. Because cheap yeah. strawberries sound cheap, but these strawberries are so cheap because you have to go pick them yourself. There's justification in that, and it's the IKEA effect all over. Yeah, that's right. Um, absolutely. I mean, um, the uh, and there, and then of course there's a sense of ownership, etc. All kinds of wonderful things, happen, which is why often when we create our physical environments and our, these immersive experiences, what we're also trying to do is have people come to their own insights. Because often, as soon as you tell something to someone, you've actually taken away from them. So what we want is, we, we call it creating parallels. So we create parallels in the experience and then enable people to find the connections between the parallels. And that's then, now they own it. Now, if you then find connections between parallels that we didn't anticipate, well, that's a discovery. That's science. So we also then have, within our experience, making true discoveries that no one's known, not just you or I didn't know. Um, but, and then you, and then you suddenly have ownership of that and you behave very differently towards it. Talk to me about leadership. You have a, an interesting framework for how people can be better leaders or the, the fundamental elements of leadership. Yeah. So leaders, um, leaders effectively, as we were talking about before, in terms of the host effect, first of all, you know, they determine the, um, the, not just the culture as such, but the, almost the hard to measure aspects of a company that sort of enable people, for instance, to, to be uncertain, to ask questions. Uh, so often leaders are thought they're supposed to have the answers. 
And this is where we're going, where in fact the best leaders lead others into uncertainty as opposed to create uncertainty or think that they themselves have to solve the uncertainty. What they do is create an environment in which others can actually ask questions and then we can prosecute those questions. So I'd argue, for instance, in terms of science or laboratory, science is not about iterating to better questions. It's about iterating, sorry, iterating to better answers. It's actually iterating to better and better questions. But you need an environment in which you can actually have that iteration process where not knowing, asking questions is celebrated. Uh, we also know, for instance, that uh, there are three qualities of a leader that are associated with success of any one company. It's lead by example, admit mistakes, and see qualities in others. So lead by example is a space um, that creates trust. Now, you can't um, engage in uncertainty outside a space that is trusting. So that's lead by example. Admit mistakes is a space that says, hey, not knowing is good here. And see qualities in others is a space that celebrates diversity. But what's interesting, there's a lot of talk about diversity. Diversity by itself is not necessarily a good or a bad thing. What often people forget is you also have to integrate across that diversity. It's not just about having a what lot of mean? different stuff. So this is actually comes down to physics. So um, and in some sense, science. What your brain is constantly looking for, understanding is finding a principle that transcends context. So when you understand something, you actually understand it at a deeper level where now you can apply that understanding to multiple environments. Okay. And that's because you've been able to integrate across the diversity of those environments. You've been able to find something common, right? Um, so whether it be talking to a woman or a, a man or whatever it might be, right? And then, of course, you're trying to find what's specific to that person, for instance. But what you're trying to do is find um, the thing that integrates across diversity. So E equals MC squared. Doesn't care if it's a planet or a bowling ball or a chicken right it's just it's gravity right doesn't care it doesn't depend on all that so you're trying to find those principles and that's because you're integrating across diversity so in terms of a company you're trying to not just have diversity you're trying to find um how how these different people of different kinds of backgrounds or whatever can integrate can communicate can share it makes me think so a lot. Are, it makes yeah. me think a lot about the about the way that that leadership works, about the way that companies that are very effective, the asking questions thing, and the what was the first like competence? What was the first one? How did you frame that one? So lead by example. Lead by example. Yeah. So yeah. I had Will Saw on the show recently talking about the status game, and mm -hmm. in that he said that there's three primary routes to well, technically two, but three kind of three primary routes to status. Uh, and one of them is fear, basically, kind of force. Um, another one is trustworthiness. And the final one is sort of usefulness or competence or virtue, something along those lines. And these are the three fundamental ways in which people find status. And the reason for this mm. is makes a lot of sense. Like those would be three ways that somebody could become renowned, powerful, admired, whatever you want to call it, within a tribe. And it makes me mm -hmm. think about the person at the top of the tree that there is a there's a requisite amount of competence that's needed. So, for instance, we use in our um, events company, we have quite a vertically um, sort of stratified company in terms of managers. We have junior managers and event managers and then senior event managers and city managers, and then we have directors. And it's not a 
tremendously big company, but we draw these guys out so that it gives them this sense of progression. And it also allows us to sort out pay packages efficiently. And the guys that have the most respect from the team below them often have a number of different elements together. But one of the ones that they almost always do is that they have the biggest guest list totals. So if these guys are regularly putting in the hard yards, this is the fundamental thing that everybody does. It's the sales, right? It's Let's say that the director of the sales company still does sales and you can see him on a board. And yeah, maybe he's got more experience than everybody else. And yeah, maybe his contacts are better than everybody else, but he's still got to put the sales on the board, right? And his board's the same as your board and he makes, you know, that's, that's the way it works. A lot of the guys that have been our most successful managers throughout time have been the ones that have displayed competence that are seen by everybody else. Everybody else gets to see it. It's on the same score sheet that they're on. And they can compare their performance with theirs. You'll see this in CrossFit as well. This is one of the reasons I think that the CrossFit Open has had so much uptake. It's the first fitness competition ever where the world champion, you get to compete against him. You do the same workout with the same weights, the same movement specs, and you get to go, oh my God, he did it in nine minutes and 40 seconds. I did it in 20 minutes. Like how how stupid mm. am I? Like I'm so blah, blah, blah. You get to, right, because we can see competence. It's very, very clearly displayed in front of us. And I think um, as a small business owner, it's one of the interesting things thinking about as you rise up through the through the ranks. I'm a big proponent of people earning their bread and butter and really understanding each of the different levels of their business maybe when you get to the stage where you've got like board members that are kind of more like advisory or specialized perhaps this becomes because you're less of a figurehead you're not actually interacting with the people um but for instance with podcasting a lot of guys that start podcasting if they want to build a big channel they'll try and get an editor on board quickly or a video guy and you're like well hang on if they come to you if, if you're unhappy with something to do with the audio and you don't know what you're talking about if you say it's a bit this and you're just using vague language that person's not going to have as much respect for you if you're able to actually really use the correct terminology. And the same thing goes for houses. So if you have a property portfolio, my advice is you should manage your properties for perhaps a year or a couple of years, and then you can get a letting agency in. Why? Well, because if you need to sit down with somebody in a meeting and have a conversation about why your properties are being mismanaged, and you don't understand the processes, even at least on sort of a, you know, a broad level, you have no idea what you're talking about it's going to be much more difficult to command respect. So yeah, competence appears to be a pretty impressive drug. Very much so. It's, I'd, I'd also think about competence in terms of reliability as well, which is hugely important when, when people are reliable, whether it be at a personal relationship level or, or at a, in a corporate and um, company level. Um, that reliability and competence, you're right, creates a sense of trust. Um, with that said, and also there's because there's a sense of earning it, but it also enables you, I would argue, that the best um, leaders enable others to become competent. Okay, um, But in order to do so, that's where I think a leader becomes a mentor in more sort of the traditional sense. Instead of telling them what to do, you create an environment for them to become competent. And actually, it will make the organization more successful. Um, rather than each individual competing over competence, they're actually in some sense competing over the ability to enable others to become competent. But in order to become competent, you have to understand the space in which the person is engaging. Right? Now, there's also a flip side to that, though, because the leader can also, the person who's very competent can also become an expert. And experts are really, they're very efficient, but they're really bad at asking a good question. Right? Why is that? Because they know what they're not supposed to ask. 
So over and over again, the experts will say, no, we don't do it that way. No, that can't be done. No, it hasn't been, et cetera, et cetera. They'll be, no, no, this uh, is so the way you do it. It's too constricting for the people that are below them because they don't get to learn by failing. Yes, that's one. And two, that the, um, the expert is focused on efficiency, which is why I'm a huge celebrator of being naive, not ignorant, but naivete. Because people who are naive can ask brilliant questions but they don't know they're great questions. So it's not that they're thinking outside the box. They're just in a different box. Okay, the experts in this box, and this is the way we do it in this box, and we're going to be very efficient. And that's a great idea if the world didn't change, right? But then the world changes, and what the, what the leader has to do is change with it, which means they have to actually balance creativity with efficiency. That means balancing naive with experts. So in my own team, and uh, my own our own um, work, we try to have a diversity, but that diversity in this well, we have lots of different kinds of diversity, but in this instance is diversity between naive and expert. Because a brilliant expert can can't ask a great question, but they can recognize a great question when asked. Right? Because they're open. It's like, ah shit, I thought we should have done it this way. This whole last 20 years we've been doing it this way. But now that you mention this, I've never thought of it that way, but let's go in that direction. Now I'm enabling you to be competent, right? Um, and that's where the self-awareness comes in, that I have knowing that you have biases, that you have assumptions that come from a history and often a history that you inherited. Um, so it's being also willing to step away from that as well, which is, I would argue, a very strong sense of being competent because competence is also about having courage. And when, you know, as my mom used to say, a black belt doesn't have to say he's, he or she's a black belt. They just are. So when you have that sense that, of competence, it means you're no longer trying to prove yourself. You're never longer trying to prove your competence. You just are. You just live it. And you enable others to live it. Right? Um, and part of that is to, to understand that sometimes you get it wrong. And not that you got it wrong, but being able to expand your own sense and that's how you get resilience that's how you get agility in in an individual or in a company and think about personal relationships if that personal relationship isn't moving if a romantic relationship isn't i would argue expanding then in some sense it's dying but so often the people want to stay still and initially that's okay but after a year or two or three years you're still standing still it's like ah you know and then eventually one wants to move. I don't mean move on, but they want to expand. And the other's like, oh, no, but that's scary because I kind of like it the way it is. Because that's, that's kind of, I don't know what that's like over there. But now things that don't move, things that don't expand literally just die. What new experiments have you got coming up? Anything fun that you can tell us about? So we're doing a set of experiments on, uh, we're hopefully starting a set of experiments on touch, the power of touch, which I think is a fascinating topic. Um, and we're also just finishing a set of experiments on the power of home. All right. Yeah. Um, and, and I can't go into the details of it, um, uh, but we're finding some powerful, wonderful um, insight into the importance of home for your brain um, and how we feel about home. And so, uh, so touch and home and silence we're, we're currently working on. And then um, we're, hopefully going to be working with a, a wonderful person called Perry, who, who who also runs a very, like yourself, an important podcast, et cetera. And he works on chronic pain. 
So we're going to be doing some experiments on chronic pain. And then we're also working with another group of um, war veterans with PTSD and, and trying to better understand how we can facilitate and help them uh, um, and measure this, the impact of certain treatments on PTSD, including uh, ayahuasca. Why are you in Ibiza? That's a, I, <laughs> it's kind of a short question, a long, uh, short answer, a long answer. Um, why am I in Ibiza? Because um, I found myself here um, and now creating a life here in some sense. But about a year and a half ago, so the longer, but I'll try to keep a brief answer, is that about a year and a half ago, um, I packed up my living in Manhattan. So I've been in Britain for 25 years, and then I, I moved to, to New York. And then as the, sec as the lo second lockdown was about to start, I packed up my house in Manhattan, put everything in storage, rented a ragtop, and what I called turn left. And I drove across America. Um, my mom was just diagnosed with Parkinson's, so I went to stay with her. Then I cycled down the West Coast. Uh, of the states and then I drove back across and basically for the last year and a half two years I've been living out of one bag um, and why it's in some sense because well I study uncertainty and and I believe in being a trope I believe you should be the thing that you talk about or at least try as much as possible and and also it's research for a new book I'm writing so I've just been movement and now I found myself here and so now um, that we're doing some wonderful things. We just created a new space here and, and we'll run experiments and events and things like that here. Uh, and, uh, and so that's why I find myself in Ibiza. Is that for the foreseeable now? Uh, for the foreseeable, but I travel probably like yourself. I travel a great deal. And so it's a wonderful place to then come back to. You are and miles away because we I was in Ibiza and we were going to do this in person, but then I looked at where you are on the map. And I've been to some pretty wavy afters. I've been to some naughty after parties in Ibiza, but I've never been as far north as you are. You are off the top of the yeah, island. But, but for crying out loud, far north is like 40 minutes away. It's a small island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> no, but isn't it funny how relative that is? Like, yep. it's all the way on the other side. It's yeah, so true. Yeah. Um, and it's the north, and the north of the island is very different from the south of the island. I'm new here. So, but um, there's a very different feel. And it's beautiful and all that. So yes, I'm in the north. Uh, but it would have been fun to do it uh, together. But yeah. um, well, next time, man. Next time. If you're still time. there, if you're still there next year, then we can do it. Look, Bo Lotto, ladies and gentlemen. People want to keep up to date with what you're doing. Where should they go? Well, um, they should go to labamisfit.com, uh, labamisfits.com, and they can actually find. We like my traveling and the I don't know stuff and all that. I I post something every two weeks on a, a blog. We also run experiments on people so they can take part of experiments and better understand themselves. Uh, we also have a Lab of Misfits Instagram page, and I just started my first personal Instagram. Oh, um, so I'm doing go. a foray. Descending, so in. descending into the muck and the mire along with the rest of us. Get down here. So Come maybe, on. right? Because I'm going to turn it into an experiment. But it's a social are. experiment. It's a personal experiment um, because I've been resistant. So I want to see what happens. So I'm doing an experiment on myself. So people are welcome to come along on that experiment. What's the um, What's your Instagram? Uh, it's Bolado, and the other one is Lab of Misfits. I love um, it. Man. Well, look yeah. until next year, dude. All right, brilliant to talk to you.